with us. Last Sunday, you know, I began a new sermon series as we're getting close to Easter. Uh, we're in the season of Lent at this time, and I thought something that would be good as we're taking a break from the book of Acts is to just focus on what happened to Jesus from the Garden of Gethsemane to when he was laid in the tomb after his crucifixion. And, you know, all four of the Gospels, they devote a large por portion uh, of their Gospels to recording what happened in those about 18 to 20 hours. And, and why did they do that? Why is this so essential to all four Gospels to devote a large chunk of time recording what happened in those very hours? The reason is because this was the very climax of the entire biblical story, right? In this moment, when Jesus was in the garden, all the way to when he was in the tomb, he was literally fulfilling dozens of prophecies that had been around for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Also, he was fulfilling dozens of Old Testament typologies, all of them finding their culmination right there in the garden and in the trials and on the cross and in the tomb. From the vantage point of the Christian, what transpired from Gethsemane to Golgotha is the very center point of our history. The entire world, <laughs> our entire lives, does not make sense outside the centrality of what Jesus did on the cross at Golgotha, right? In fact, we can't understand history correctly. We can't even understand ourselves or each other correctly except by the redemptive sufferings of Jesus from Gethsemane to Golgotha. So I just want to look at something Paul actually says that, that makes that very clear, and it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is what he writes beginning in verse 14. He says, The love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, meaning we have made this calculation. This is what the Christian's worldview is. That if one, who's that, Jesus, died for all, then all died. Meaning he is the representative of all man. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, meaning in light of the cross, this is the Christian worldview. From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer, right? How do we know Christ? We know him as the enthroned Lord who right now is reigning as king of kings at the right hand of the majesty of power in heaven, right? And the reality is, is we need to view every person through what Jesus did for them at the cross of Calvary, that he is somebody, he God Almighty, become flesh, died for them. You know, the very nature of the world changed because of what transpired at Golgotha. And we see people as those that God has come to rescue and shed his precious blood for, right? We don't just see people through the lens of their first representative, Adam, right? We don't just see them as dirty, rotten sinners, Although, how many know people are dirty, rotten sinners, right? But we have a better evaluation of them. We have a higher evaluation. We have a revelation. 
We see them as people that Christ suffered and Christ died for and that Christ loves with an everlasting love. And when we look at everything that Christ endured from Gethsemane to Golgotha, what we are witnessing is the greatest display of love that the world has ever seen, right? In fact, we can only define love by the cross. In fact, we can only know that God is love by the cross. This is what Paul writes in Romans 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates... He makes known, He makes clear his, his own love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, bad, unholy, unrighteous people, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. <laughs> this is amazing love, right? That Christ died for us, meaning He is our substitute. He is our representative. He died our death that we needed to die because the wages of our sin demanded it. And, and, and he says, we have been justified. We have been made righteous. We are uncondemned in front of the holy God, seated with him in the heavenly places. Why? We're justified by his blood. Where, where, where did that blood happen? It happened right there at the cross. It began to happen in Gethsemane, as we saw last Sunday, when he was in agony and he was sweating great drops of blood, right? And we are saved from wrath. How? <laughs> Through him. We're not saved from wrath based on our worthiness. We're not saved from wrath based on our good deeds, but solely through Jesus Christ. So that's what we're looking at in this series. We're, we're, we're looking at these themes of the demonstration of God's love. Last Sunday, we looked at the garden. This morning, we're going to look at the arrest. The, fall, the next Sunday, we're going to look at the religious trial in front of Annas and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. The following week, we're going to look at the civil trial in front of Pontius Pilate. The next week, we're going to look at the Via Della Rosa, the way of suffering. Christ, who, who, who is, you know, of course, um, given the crown of thorns and carries the cross to Golgotha. The sixth week, we're going to look at the crucifixion. And finally, on the seventh week, we're going to gather and we're going to celebrate the resurrection. Amen. So, if you were with us last Sunday, you know, we, we looked at what happened to Jesus in the garden, right? It was the greatest agony and suffering that any man has ever gone through, right? And he's praying for three hours and he throws himself face down on the ground alone before the Father. And he says, Father, I don't want to drink it. But if it be your will, I will. And of course, it was his will. So of course, Jesus said yes to it. And he, he drank the cup of suffering and of wrath that we deserve. Well, we saw that the prayers of Jesus, and we even looked at this more on Wednesday night, is we saw the prayers of Jesus in the garden under that great trial is really an example of how all of us are to pray because he was even living out his own teaching on prayer, on the Lord's Prayer. We saw how his prayer was humble, right? He's prostrate on his, on his face. He's kneeling even on his knees. We see how it was a relational prayer. He said, Abba, Father. We saw how it was a persevering prayer, right? He didn't just pray once or for a couple minutes. No, he prayed 
three times for probably two or three hours in full. We saw how, how it was a fervent prayer. It was an earnest, heartfelt prayer. It, it was a yielding prayer. In all three prayers, Jesus repeated, Thy will be done. And ultimately, we saw that his prayer was a prevailing prayer, right? He, he prayed all the way through to the point where he knew that he had the victory and he rose from that ground in strength, ready to roll. And uh, so, so that's where we're picking up this morning. And um, we're, we're picking up right at the point where Jesus rises up from the ground after that great agony in the garden. And we can imagine as he rose that his garments are soaked and stained in the blood and sweat of those traumatic hours. As he wrestled with what was about to transpire. Not just all the flogging and, and, and the most gruesome form of capital punishment ever devised, but the fact that the sin of the world would be laid upon him and he would suffer the consequences of that sin. And after he rose, we're told that he walked back to the garden gate where he had left um, eight of his apostles. And, and first he comes to the first three, Peter, James, and John, who are a, a little more into the garden. And what does he see, Peter, James, and John, who he had already woken up twice? What does he see? They're sleeping again, right? Talk about a failure of discipleship, right? I, I, I think we, we see these people, the three most faithful, loyal disciples Jesus has, Peter, James, and John. And he has to wake them up and command them to watch and pray three separate times. You know, some people would see this as a three strikes and you're out situation, right? That's how we evaluate things according to the world, right? They're absolutely miserable at following Jesus' instructions. They kind of remind me of me sometimes, right? How many know that you fall short and are in constant need of the abundant grace of God every day to be effective in Christian living? You know, Jesus could have justifiably, when he came to Peter, James, and John and see him sleeping for the third time, he could have berated them, right? For their negligence and disobedience. But instead... As a tender, protecting, and forgiving shepherd, this is what he says, Matthew 26, 45. Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So he, bas he basically tells his inner circle, let's roll. He knew exactly what was about to transpire. He knew he was going to be betrayed. He knew he was going to be bound. He knew he was going to be led to the religious authorities. Nothing was catching him by surprise. In fact, he's in charge of the whole scene. So rather than run away, he marches toward the arresting party that's marching toward him. And he emerges from his time of prayer where he was just in great agony and great turmoil and even as Mark said terrified he rises from that time of prayer as an extraordinary man of strength right he rises ready to confront his captors ready to confront his tortures ready to confront death and the devil itself and he goes into that moment with an unwavering fortitude you know the devil 
who Jesus called that night in the upper room, he called him the ruler of the world, had done his best to get Jesus to not drink the bitter cup. He had done his best to get Jesus to not fall on his face and say, your will be done. But that dragon of old, of course, he failed, right? He could not get the last Adam to fall in the garden like the first Adam had. In fact, this is what he did say in the, in the upper room in John 14, 30. He told them, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and what? And he has nothing in me. There was nothing in Jesus that the devil could cling to or accuse. In him was no sin, John says, right? He was pure. He was holy. The devil had no victory there. And so he marches toward the garden gate, not as a reluctant victim, but he marches as a triumphant and willing victor. And, and look what it says next happens in Matthew 26, 47. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now Mark, Mark tells us basically the same thing. He just adds that besides just the chief priests and elders sending him, the scribes sent them as well. But John, he gives a few more details. This is what John says in John 18, 3. Then Judas, having received a, a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, so here he adds uh, a fourth group, so it's the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns, lanterns torches, and weapons. All right. So... Scholars say that the multitude described by Matthew and Mark was most likely the police or court servants. These were people who were at the disposal of the Jewish ruling council known as the Sanhedrin. Whereas the troops that are described by John are likely the presence of the temple guard that were commanded by the temple colonel. So basically the gospel writers are communicating that the top religious leaders in Jerusalem sent the largest police forces under their command to go and arrest this mild man, Jesus. Imagine them winding their way from the temple precincts with torches, lanterns, swords, clubs, weapons, through the Mount of Olives to the secluded garden where Judas knew Jesus would be because he met there frequently with Jesus throughout the last three years. You know... And, and, and as we've seen, Jesus knew they were coming long before they had arrived. And in, instead of hiding out somewhere, instead of, instead of running away, he marches right towards them. And look, let's see what, how John records the incident in John 18, verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Who are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. That word he is in, it, in italics because it's not really there in the Greek. They drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. Talking about his 11 apostles that the saying might be fulfilled which you spoke, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Now, I imagine all these rough, tough guys in the temple guard 
all the police servants, probably thought they're about to sneak up on Jesus and his small band of followers and spook the living daylights out of them, right? But when they get to the place where Jesus is and ask for him, he simply responds with two words in the Greek. Ego eimi, I am. And it says, the moment he says, I am, that they all fall down, right? <laughs> so the arresting party doesn't really find or surprise Jesus as much as Jesus finds and surprises the arresting party, right? The blind leaders of Jerusalem, they come stumbling around in their own blindness with lanterns and torches, not knowing that they would be met by the very light of the world. Jesus is the lantern that exposes the true darkness in the garden that night. It is not really Jesus that is going on trials as much as it's the chief priest, Pilate, and the entire world. Think about the question Jesus asked the arresting mob. He says, whom are you seeking? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. And what is his response? I am, right? I am. Jesus is not identifying as Jesus of Nazareth. Rather, he is identifying the way he is identified throughout the Gospel of John, which is, let me give you an even higher identity. I'm not just Jesus of Nazareth. I am, right? I am. In other words, he's identifying as their great and mighty God, Yahweh. These are the guys who were supposed to be policing Yahweh's house in Jerusalem. And he says, you think you're policing Yahweh's house? Well, you just come out to arrest Yahweh. The one who spoke to Moses in the burning bush, how did he, what did he say to Moses? He says, I am. Throughout John, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He says, I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. This is I am. This is not Jesus of Nazareth. Yes, it is Jesus of Nazareth. But you don't know who I really am. I am, I am. I am that I am. In fact, one of his clearest divine affirmations is also in John. It's in John chapter 8. And they wanted to stone him. It was at the Feast of Tabernacles. <laughs> and Jesus is like, you know, they're, they're mad. How do you, you know, know Abraham? You're not even 50 years old. And this is what he says in John 8, 58. Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That's who's in the garden. Well, he pronounces the divine I am, and, and, and it says that the arresting party falls to the ground. Now, interestingly, there was only one time each year God's name was pronounced by the Jews. That was a mistake by them, because they're commanded by God throughout the Old Testament, pronounce the divine name. But they just think, oh, it's so holy, and we might mess it up. So we're going to substitute the name Adonai, which means Lord. And so they're, they're wrong for doing that. But they at least said it once, and it was on Yom Kippur, uh, the Day of Atonement. And when the high priest would pronounce that name, <laughs> we're told, I think it's either in the Mishnah or the Talmud, that all the Jews would fall prostrate to the ground. And that's what the temple guard, so every, every year on, on Yom Kippur, the temple guard would fall prostrate when the high priest would pronounce the divine name. Well, guess what? Jesus is pronouncing the divine name, and what are they doing? They're falling prostrate, right? 
But the big difference is that Jesus does not simply utter the name right, but he identifies as the name. And uh, that is what is so remarkable. What's happening here about this giant multitude arresting party coming to arrest Jesus and, and stumbling on the ground, it reminds me of one of my favorite psalms, which is Psalm 27. This is what it says in verse 2. When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, that's what they're coming to do, right? My enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army, they were an army, right? May encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Was Jesus afraid? No. He was in charge. Though war may rise against me, did war rise against him? Yeah. In this I will be confident. <laughs> you know, he goes on to say, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. You know, Jesus, uh, his heart did not fear because he knew he would be vindicated in his resurrection. He knew he would see the goodness of Yahweh in the land of the living. Um, yes, his trial, his suffering would be great, but the new creation that was coming on the other side was more than worth it. So out of love, he submits. And as the arresting multitude is laying on the ground, you know, imagine all the multitudes laying on the ground. Jesus could have walked away free, right? They're not in control. What transpires is not happening against Jesus' will. He submits. He's the commander. He's the one that's basically saying, bind me. The innocent willingly taking the place of the guilty. No one takes my life from me, Jesus says. I willingly lay it down. One preacher of old put it like this. Love fettered himself to unfetter man. That's what Jesus is doing. He's taking the bonds, the punishment that we deserve. So what happens next? Well, this is, I think, what a lot of people are familiar with in the rest. And that's being betrayed with a kiss. Look what it says in Matthew 26, 48. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, sees him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Mark puts it like this in Mark 14, 44. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, sees him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. <laughs> so does this happen before Jesus confronts them or after? We're not told, I'm not sure. But what I do know is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all make a big deal out of the fact that Jesus was betrayed with a kiss by Judas. Or, you know, I, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, I think, you know, Judas's name uh, is, is Greek. How they would have understand it is Judah. You know, whenever you see an S at the end, it's, it's usually just, it's kind of like Jesus, it's, it's, it's actually Joshua, but they have that S, it's the way uh, you know, Greek and, and even Latin works as they, they have the S's on the end. But it's Judah. His name is Judah. So the, the and, and, and I've, I've mentioned this before as well, the kiss that, that Judah gives Jesus is it, not just a peck on the cheek. It's a lavish kiss. This is not just the word for kiss. It's the word for kiss that's used when the father of the prodigal son lavishes with him with kisses when he comes home. It, it's the word that's used of 
the woman who anoints Jesus and kisses his feet. It's, it's, a, it's a multitude of kisses. It, 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 it's um, a, a grand display, right? He, he's really drawing attention. Like, yeah, this guy who's saying he's Jesus of Nazareth, is, is this really him? Right? And he's kissing him. Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi. These people are so blind, they still don't know it's you, so I'm going to show them. Right? Now, um, all, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say that they don't just mention Judas. They mention that Judas was one of the twelve. What it is showing us is that the act of treachery is not done by just the Jewish rulers in Jerusalem or the Roman authorities, but actually by one of Jesus' dearest friends for the last three years of his ministry. Someone he had chosen to be an apostle after spending all night in prayer on a mountain. He spent all night in prayer and he said, I want Judas to be with me. I want Judah to be with me. Someone he had entrusted to share his message in all the villages throughout Israel, right? He had entrusted Judah to go and preach the gospel of the kingdom, right? In fact, he had, he had given Judah a share in his miraculous power and authority to go out and heal and cast out demons. But though Judah had been so close to Jesus and he had witnessed all the wonderful works and even experienced his mighty power working through him, his heart had been torn between two masters. You see, John tells us that Judah was a lover of money. In fact, just one week earlier, after Jesus, uh, you know, had Lazarus raised from the dead, and he's there in Bethany at his home with Mary and Martha, and, and, and Mary anoints him for his burial. Remember, she, she puts the cost, costly ointment, the perfume that's worth a year's wages. And, and Jude, Judas is like, Master, she should have sold that, and we should have given all the money away to the poor. Right? He tries to appear like he's some kind of altruistic man. But the reality was is he wanted the money for himself. And in fact, look what John says about it in John 12, verse 6. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box. Jesus entrusted this guy with the money box. You know, if <laughs> ministries sometimes have problems you know, with people stealing money. Well, Jesus did too. He had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. Wow, one of the twelve was a thief. It's remarkable to think. You know, Jesus, one of the main things he taught about was money. If you look at his parables, if you look at his, his, his lessons. And apparently all those words just bounced right off Judas's heart. You know, if one of the twelve apostles could be tempted by money, then certainly you and I can be tempted by money. How many know that's true, right? So it's important to make sure that we do not place our trust in riches. Money as a way of controlling people, of destroying people. And yet at the end of our lives, we're assured in both the book of Psalms and in Timothy that you cannot take it with you. <laughs> right? So we better lay up treasures in heaven where wrath and must do not destroy. Right? Where thieves do not break in and steal. Look what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount about money. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. It's an impossibility. In Colossians, Paul tells us that covetousness is idolatry. 
it's serving mammon. So it's interestingly that it is immediately after the anointing of Jesus in Bethany, where Judas makes this statement about how that money should be given to the poor, that Matthew tells us that he immediately, secretly goes to the chief priests. Speaking of probably Annas, Caiaphas, some of the other powerful priests in the temple precincts. And he seeks to make a deal for money to betray Jesus. Look what it says in Matthew 26, 14. Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot. Uh, Iscariot, uh, a lot of scholars say that that means he's from uh, a town. Of, there's a few different things it can mean. A lot of people believe it means he's from a place called Kerioth, which was in Judah, the region of Judah, southern Israel, where all the other apostles were Galileans. So this guy really, in many, many ways, represents the Jewish people, the Jewish religious leaders. His name is Judah. We'll get to that more in a, in a moment. So he goes to the chief priest and he's in verse 15 and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So he's looking at each piece they're counting out. One. His eyes are getting bigger. Three. Four. Five. So from that time on, he sought opportunity to betray him. The chief priest valued Jesus at 30 pieces of silver. These guys were supposed to be the experts in Scripture. And yet we'll see they're really, apparently, you know, not, to put it nicely. And Judas, he agrees, because they have no idea that what they're doing is fulfilling prophecy. Multiple Old Testament prophecies. And Judas, he agrees to that price, 30 pieces of silver. What, why? What do we think? 30 pieces of silver? How much is that? It's about four months' wages, okay? The average household income in America is 70000 so we could maybe understand Judas receiving about $23,000, right? A sum that might appeal to the heart of someone whose God is mammon, right? 23000 that might be a, a temptation, right? For the average Joe, right? Now, it's also important to remember at this point that the name of Judas, like I mentioned, is Judah. It's Judah who betrays Jesus. Now, many of Jesus' disciples had names that were part of the 12 original tribes. For instance, Simon, who's Peter, is actually Simeon. That's the second son of, of Israel. <laughs> Matthew, we first meet him, what's his name? Levi. That's the third son of Israel. Judas, there's two Judases that are part of Jesus' 12. Their real name is Judah. Who's that? That's the fourth son of Israel. <laughs> right? And so, what, what we see is that um, this is just a sign of how the 12 of Jesus are a picture of a new Israel that are being reconstructed under Jesus. And in fact, the word Jew itself just comes from Judah. So most of the Israelites that were left in Israel after the Babylonian captivity, most of them traced their ancestry through Judah. And so the nation as a whole became known as what? Jews. We first see that in the post-exilic books, books like Nehemiah and Ezra and Esther. So in a sense, the fact that Judah was betraying Jesus pictured all of the Jewish people who were betraying him. What does John tell us in John 1.12? He came to his own, and what? His own did not receive him. But as many who did receive him, he gave them right to become children of God. You know, in the Old Testament, Judah, it's Judah who was the brother who betrayed Joseph. You know, 
all the other brothers, you know, they wanted to kill him. But Judah thought, kill him? Come on, we can do better than that. This is what Judah says in Genesis 37, 26. So Judah said to his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Oh, this guy was just like Judah, right? You know, the Jewish leaders at the time of Jesus, who, who did they sell him to? They sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And the Jewish leaders at the time of Jesus were spiritual Ishmaelites. That's what Galatians 4 says. They were children of the flesh. Jesus, the beloved son of the father, was just like Joseph. And he's, he's betrayed by his own flesh and blood. But though he is betrayed, though he is taken away, he, like Joseph, would eventually rise in glory to rule at all things at the right hand of Pharaoh. He would provide salvation even to the ones who sold him into slavery. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Another thing about Judah is this. You know, every Hebrew word is also a number. You know what the number of Judah is? <laughs> 30. His name means 30. 30 sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And you know what also is interesting about that? Is the fact that the price of compensation for a servant that was killed, you know what it was? 30 pieces of silver. Look what Exodus 21, 32 says. If the ox gores a male or female servant, he shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. Now, they took that and they applied it to any, uh, you know, however someone might have killed their servant. They would get 30 shekels of silver in compensation. Well, who was Jesus? Jesus is the suffering servant from Isaiah chapter, you know, 40 through 66. That's who Jesus is. And what is he sold for? He's sold for the price of a servant's death. They're you know, these priests who are counting out the shekels of silver, they're fulfilling Exodus 21, they're fulfilling Genesis 37, and most explicitly, they're fulfilling Zechariah 11, verse 13. And Yahweh said to me, this is what it says, Zechariah 11, And Yahweh said to me, throw it to the potter. That princely price they set on me. So I took 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of Yahweh for the potter. That's, of course, what G Judas ultimately does. Because he regrets what he did. Doesn't really repent. We'll get to that. He just regrets it. Well, what happens after Jesus is about to be seized? His disciples react according to the flesh. How many of us as disciples sometimes react according to the flesh? I react according to the flesh too often. That's why uh, I put on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Matthew 26, 51 says. And suddenly, they see the arresting party, Judas handing him over. And suddenly, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. All four Gospels record this incident. And, and, and John mentions that it's Peter who struck him with the sword. But the reality is that many of them, probably, maybe all the disciples, wanted to strike him with swords, right? Jesus' disciples were passionate guys. They're fishermen. They're zealots. James and John are described by Jesus as sons of thunder. They wanted to call down fire on all the Samaritans. They, they are men who long for Jesus to rule as king in Jerusalem. And if they could use a sword to help Jesus get there, they're going to use the sword. In, in fact, not long, long before this, Jesus had told them this in Matthew 19, 28. 
Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, he's talking about heaven. They're thinking he's talking about earth. You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. They're also thinking of 12 physical thrones in Jerusalem. That's not what Jesus is talking about. But they take it literally. And they believe that day was just about around the corner. And, and in fact, the mother of James and John, he, she comes to Jesus and says, uh, uh, can, can, can my sons sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand, right? And the other ten hear about it, and, and, and they get mad. Why do they get mad? They get mad because they want to sit at the right and left hand of Jesus, right? But Jesus says, well, well, wait a second. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. This is the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You don't understand what I was talking about, guys. Well, the message of Jesus didn't obviously form Peter very well quite yet. And so the minute Jesus willingly goes to the arrest, he begins to swing one of the two swords that they had brought from the upper room. And I'll tell you one thing that I'm certain about. Peter wasn't trying to cut off this guy's ear. He was trying to cut off his head. He probably thought he was like, David, I'm going to cut off Goliath's head. He probably thought he was Judas Maccabeus. I'm that hammer of God and I'm going to make us free again, right? And he doesn't just go for any old, part, any old person in the party, the arresting party. He goes for probably the ringleader. He, he goes for the high priest's servant, Right? Himself, who, who we're told his name is Malchus. But what does Jesus do? He immediately corrects Peter. I, I imagine he probably had an angel just nudge him a little bit so he missed his head and just cut his ear off too. <laughs> Jesus was being merciful to him. And this is what he says, Matthew 26, 52. But Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that, I must, that it must happen thus? So, so Jesus, he gives Peter a really simple proverb. He who lives by the sword dies by the sword. You know, Jesus is telling him, Peter, you're not a civil magistrate, right? According to scripture, only the civil magistrate has the right to use the sword except in certain special instances of self-defense. Jesus is reminding Peter that he had no authority or right to kill Malchus. That sort of guerrilla warfare Peter's emotions had goaded him into was an unholy act. And if, if Peter had indeed succeeded in taking the life of Malchus, his life would have needed to be taken. That's what Genesis 9, 6 says. So G Jesus, as a good shepherd, is wanting Peter to live, right? Our compassionate Prince of Peace understood Peter's heart to protect him, but he also rebuked Peter's way of conducting himself. You know, the only thing Jesus ever commanded his disciples to take up was not a sword. It's one thing he commanded them to take up. You know what it was? The cross. In fact, it's right after Peter claims that he's the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And he wants to rework their understanding of what the Messiah is. So this is what he tells them in Matthew 16, verse 24. 
then Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Where is the cross? It's an instrument of death. Yet, for Jesus, it's also an instrument of victory, right? Jesus teaches us to love our enemies. Matthew 5, 44. He told them on several occasions that he must suffer, die, and rise again. Did Peter not see that Jesus was in complete control of the situation as the arresting party fell to the ground at the simple com- uh, mention of his name? Right? These guys had really thick skulls, right? They're really slow learners. Aren't you glad that Jesus deals with slow learners? Jesus still loved them. Jesus gently rebukes them. Peter, you're one man, flesh and blood. I could have 12 legions of angels here like this. You know, the largest military unit in a Roman army was a legion. About 6,000 men included. Infantry, cavalry, auxiliary. Right? So basically Jesus is saying, I could have 72,000 spiritual warriors... You know, probably some of them are going to be Calvary, too, kind of like what Elisha sees, right? All the heavenly horses and chariots in the hillside. You know, in in 2 Kings, in fact, we're told that one angel, you know how many he killed in one night of of the uh, Assyrian army? 185,000. Well, what could 72,000 angels do? Well, I did the math. They could slaughter 13.3 billion people in one night. You think Jesus really needed any help from, from Peter? Hey, guys, my army could kill twice the population of the world in one night, right? Of course, it would have been much more than that, about 14, 15 times the population of the world at Jesus' time. So, you know, Jesus, Peter had seen. Jesus could do whatever he wanted, right? He saw him walk on water. He saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. Did he really think his puny sword is going to do anything? But how quickly he becomes fleshly minded. It's like us, right? We think we got to do things in the flesh. But what does Jesus say? Without me, you can do nothing. Right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Rely on me. Trust me. You having problems? Well, let me do it for you. (laughs) But we turn to the flesh. I'm using my pure sword and I'm going to solve my problems. No, you're not. So, so after correcting Jesus, uh, uh, or after, after Jesus corrects Peter, he turns to the bludgeoned Malchus. And what does he do? Luke tells us. Only Luke tells us. Luke twenty two fifty one. But Jesus answered and said, permit even this. And he touched his ear, Malchus's ear, the one that was cut off, and healed him. I don't know if that means a new ear grow, grew back, or he picked up the ear on the ground and he put it right back on. I don't know. Either way, it was unbelievable. In fact, a lot of people say this guy became a Christian. Early Christian tradition says that, and he was a mighty disciple of Jesus. Well, imagine Jesus reaching out with his hand that had just been drenched in the bloody sweat of his suffering to touch and heal his enemy, right? In that moment, he was bearing Malchus's sickness and disease, right? In fact, as the suffering servant just sold for 30 silver pieces, he was bearing the sickness and disease of the whole world. Right? 
And that sickness and disease is not just emotional and spiritual. It is that. Peter, I think, talks about that. But it is more than that. It's physical. In fact, this is what Matthew says in Matthew 8, 16. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. Why did he heal the sick, physically sick people? That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And who is Jesus healing? Is he healing a disciple? Is he healing a believer? No, he's healing an enemy who had come out to arrest him. You know, we can pray for unbelievers to be healed. We can pray for our enemies to be healed. The Lord desires for them to be healed and come, come to know him and come to love him. Right? And while we can believe God to be strong, to be healthy, to be well, one thing I am absolutely assured of is that when I step out of this world into eternity, I will be perfect, right? I will be without defect. I will have the fullness of health in my resurrected body forever and ever and ever. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 talks about. So Jesus experienced suffering and trauma inwardly and outwardly at the deepest levels in order to fully restore us, even our enemies. On top of that, this is a good parable of the, what we do as Christians. When we act according to the flesh, you know what we do a lot of times when we talk to people? We end up cutting people's ears off. Meaning, the way we live, they say, they see how we live and they say, I don't have anything to do with that person. The way they just acted, the way they just said something, I can't hear them anymore. We well, you know what Jesus does in his mercy. <laughs> he comes to our mistakes. <laughs> Maybe he even uses us. And he shows us how we can put their ears back on again, right? And begin to act like he act rather than act according to the flesh. So after healing, the servant and the high priest were told that Jesus turned to the arresting crowd and he asked them a simple question, Mark 14, 48. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. <laughs> right? He knew why they came at the middle of the night, midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m. They didn't want anybody to know. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook him and fled. Talking about his disciples. You know, he asked his captors, he, 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 he asked them why they're treating him as if he was a robber. Actually, the Greek word there is lestai. And Josephus uses that word lestai to speak of political revolutionaries of that day. And that's probably how the word should be understood. He's saying, why are you... you uh, treating me like I'm some sort of messianic political revolutionary. He had regularly distanced himself from that ideology. Yet the Jewish leaders knew that accusation was the only thing that could be the possible ticket to getting Rome to crucify him. So they want that charge to stick. In fact, we know Jesus ultimately ends up crucified between two lesti. Barabbas, who is freed, is also a Lestai, a political revolutionary. He's being crucified as one, even though he's not one. He's just one in a different way, in a spiritual way. And so, you know, though he asked the question, are you coming against me as, as a robber? He, he's not ignorant, right? He, he knew it, why he was being treated unjustly in the dark when no one was around. And, and this is what he says in Luke twenty two fifty three: When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not seize me, but 
This is your hour and the power of darkness. <laughs> he knows why. Because they're all possessed by the devil. In, in fact, we're told explicitly that Judas was possessed by the devil, right? Satan entered into Judas. All these other guys are too. The dark Lord was present. Satan himself, he's prowling, he's seeking to devour. It was the hour and the power of darkness. He was doing his best to get Jesus to worship him. You know, I imagine it is so dark in the place. It's kind of like the, the, the plague uh, in Egypt that, where it says it was so dark that the darkness could be felt. How many know sometimes spiritual darkness can be felt? Well, that's what it was like. Alfred Edersheim says, In that night the fierce wind of hell was allowed to sweep unbroken over the Savior. Yet Jesus was unwaveringly resolute. The darkness did not move him, for he already had gained the victory in prayer, right? How many know when you pray things through, it doesn't matter what happened, you're going to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Amen. Jesus was ready. He said, this is a power darn done. You know who I am, right? But what happened to the prayerless men? People who fell asleep. They're shaking like reeds. Ah! They run away, right? In fact, there's a really interesting detail in Mark. Only Mark records it. Mark 14, 51. Now a certain young man followed him. Some people say it's talking about Mark himself. Having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young man laid hold of him. And he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. <laughs> He's streaking through the garden. You know, this is a picture really, of all the disciples, naked in a garden, running to hide. When have we seen people naked in the garden and running to hide before anyone remember? Adam and Eve. And what does God do? He comes to them in the cool of day. Man, where are you? Who's going to provide these naked people, you know, a new robe? Like God provided Adam and Eve with tunics. Well, the only one who's going to provide them a new robe is the one who's being led away, bound, who's about to be stripped naked, who's about to be scourged, who's about to be offered as a sacrifice on the cross. It's only Jesus and Jesus alone who can clothe our nakedness. Amen? So though that disciple ran away naked, he'd soon be found in Jesus Christ. John 18, 12 says this, Then a detachment of troops... And the captain of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And bound him. You know, I think what I'm going to do is we're going to look this Wednesday, we're going to look at the, how the Judas' story ends. And Matthew tells us in Matthew 27 how his story ends. And we'll see how it picks up on some of the themes we talked about last Sunday. How David, you know, the man he was betrayed by, his best friend Ahithophel, right? And Absalom, his son. How he crosses the brook Kidron. He goes on the Mount of Olives. He's weeping. But ultimately, the one who betrays him ends up hanging himself. That's what happened to Judas, right? And there's a lot of details to the story, so I think I want to develop it more. And we'll, we'll look at it uh, and, and Wednesday night, this, uh, this coming Wednesday night, so you can... You can join us for that. But I do want to conclude on just one last thought, which is this. You know, there's another interesting figure in the Old Testament. 
who's betrayed by kisses. And it's the greatest judge in the book of Judges, the last great judge. Anyone know his name? Samson. Remember, he gets hooked up with this girl, Delilah. He says, Delilah, I like Delilah. And finally, her kisses and her pestering and everything, he finally tells her the secret of his strength. And anyone remember what happens? He lost his strength when they cut his hair, right? And what happens is they pluck out his eyes. And he goes to a grinding mill. Most people say that was an oil press, kind of like Jesus is in the oil press, Gethsemane. And he's in darkness, just like Jesus was in darkness. And he is grinding the oil for the Philistines. But what does he do in that time? He prays. What is Jesus doing in the garden as he's being crushed? He prays. And what does God do? He says, okay. I'll give you one last great victory. And it's going to be the greatest victory in the, in the entire book of Judges. It's going to be the capstone of all my salvific work for the people of Israel at this time. And I'll do it for you. It's going to be a picture of Jesus Christ. This is what it says. In Judges 16.30, Then Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might. He's like this. And the temple fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it, so the dead that he killed at his death were more than he had killed in his life. The betrayed one at the end stretches out his hand and has his greatest victory. That's a picture of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus says, let me die with the Philistines, he doesn't say just let me die with the Philistines. He says, let me die for the Philistines. For I have come to die for the chief of sinners. right? And I brought out the greatest victory. And the real Philistines that I'm causing to die and the house is crumbling down is Satan and all his minions. Why? Because we overcome the dragon in Revelation 12 by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony about that blood. So what we need to do is we need to have a revelation of the cross, right? That's what this is all about, leading to the cross. I preach Christ and him crucified. This is what gives me strength in life. This is what gives me victory in life. This is what encourages me in life. This is everything about my life. This is who I am in Jesus Christ. It's all about the cross, amen? So we're going to take the tokens of the cross right now, amen? Does anyone here not receive communion elements? Go ahead and raise your hand. You know, I actually need one, Cedric, if you can bring me one as well. And if you are here today and you believe on the Lord Jesus, you can take the communion elements. Thank you. Ooh. You know, when Jesus first instituted this supper, this was earlier that night, right before Gethsemane, who is he giving it to? He's giving it to all the guys who would flee and run away, right? He's giving it to all of the guys who would fall asleep. And what would this remind them? 
This would remind him that his blood was being shed for the forgiveness of sins. We'll see next week when we look at Peter, when he denies Jesus, and he actually curses Jesus. When he denies and curses Jesus, I think that when he's weeping bitterly and he sees the look of Jesus, I think one thing he probably would have thought about is what Jesus had said earlier that night. That my blood, Peter, is being shed for the forgiveness and remission of all your sins. So what happens to Peter? Does he commit suicide like Judas? No, he's restored. And he becomes one of the most powerful men to ever live, right? He becomes the foundation stone of the church. On this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. This is what the power of the blood can have in our life. It can transform you when you understand that you've been forgiven. When you understand that you have the life of Christ inside of you. When you understand that whom the Son sets free is free indeed. You begin to live in victory when you have a revelation of what He's done for you. Amen? Amen. 1 Corinthians 11. I received from the Lord what I delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, He took bread. And when He gave thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your broken body in our behalf. We receive it now and say thank you. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Or even to put me in remembrance. It's a memorial before God, just like a rainbow is. Just as the rainbow reminds God that he will never flood the earth again, so the blood reminds God that all our sins are forgiven. So we thank you, Lord Jesus, that your blood is shed. We thank you that it cleanses us and purges us of all unrighteousness. And we take it now in thanksgiving in Jesus' name. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen? Amen. I want to invite you. Let's stand and let's worship.
Hallelujah. Well, worthy is the Lamb. And I tell you what, if anybody needs prayer for anything, I want to make sure as everyone is dismissed, please come forward. We want to pray uh, with you and for you. Just know, you know, we believe here in the power of prayer. So come forward. We'll pray for you. Uh, stick around fellowship in the, in the gym, of course. If you'd like to give in the offering, of course, there's the basket as you leave in the back. But let, let me remind you of 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So let's go out these doors and love everybody with the love of Jesus Christ. Amen?